One of the most unnatural settings for human beings is a funeral. Because we were not meant for death. Now that goes against popular culture, goes against what science would bring to us as they observe the world around us, and all that is important to take into account. But the clear understanding when we look at God's intent and purpose for the human race was life everlasting. Let me just paraphrase everlasting, lasting forever. We were not meant for death. I've been a pastor long enough now to have done a lot of funerals. Some of them of those that were cut down in their prime. Funerals of brothers and children and parents of people that are here today. I've been at funerals where the street was surrounded by people who were not churchgoers. I remember one that just circled the whole block because of the family that was loved by so many people, but the tragedy. So many people had come into this funeral home that they were actually standing in the hallway, sitting on the stairs, going up to the residence. And as I got up to speak, I looked at a mass of faces that all had one expression. And the expression said, why? It's not just the loss when we're at a funeral. There's something inside all of us that says this isn't right. It's not supposed to be this way. But culture has turned it into something that we should celebrate. They call it the circle of life. They make animated stories about it. Animals singing the circle of life. The basic concept is that we all become caribou caca. We all feed each other, and that's the concept of eternal life in a world that has no hope of what our creed tells us we believe in, and that is life everlasting. It's a shallow substitute. It's interesting for me that here we are, it's Father's Day. A year ago on Father's Day, my father passed away. And today I'm preaching on this Father's Day, on life everlasting. (laughs) It's a God moment. What a beautiful way to end the study of the creed, to look beyond the horizon of this life. I heard a phrase that said, death is just the horizon, and all the horizon is, is as far as we can see. That's all it is. For a Christian, death is just the horizon. It's not the end. I think a reap a cheap... (laughs) The brave little mouse in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, traveling with Prince Caspian, talking about that glorious land to the east, the eternal east, where the water becomes sweet, the kingdom of Aslan. It was beyond the horizon, and yet they looked in faith and believed it was there. That's what it is for us. Death is just a horizon for followers of Jesus, and a horizon is just the limit of our sight. But faith is can look beyond that. So that's what we're gonna look at today. Now this sermon has a split personality to it because as I wrestled with how I wanted to go about this, I couldn't let go of two different approaches. Certainly because this is a doctrinal series, we're looking at our beliefs. I want to explain to you what life everlasting is as the Bible describes it. But I'm more inclined today to talk about 
what it's like to be eternal people. So I'm gonna take both those paths today, and we're gonna begin by looking at a scene in the Bible that helps us understand what it's like to face death, but with the hope of eternal life. It's in John chapter 11. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and I invite you to turn there with me. John chapter 11. What we've done when we typically look at this story is put ourselves in the mindset of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. We've looked at Jesus as the giver of life. This was the ultimate miracle just before Jesus entered Jerusalem on his way to the cross. Everything is built up to this, so we've looked at it from that image, Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. But I want you to look at this story through Jesus' eyes as someone who faced death and understood it and weeped over it, and yet because he had an eternal perspective, was not defeated by it, was not lost in it. It's Jesus' view of death that ought to be the model for how you and I look at death. We're gonna begin reading at verse one. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. This is just a fascinating little scene here. Jesus' first comment about the situation is, this sickness will not end in death. Now think about it. It does end in death, doesn't it? Lazarus dies. And there were those listening to it that probably thought that's what he was talking about. Lazarus isn't gonna die, we'll take our time here. But what Jesus actually says is, this situation will not end in death. You see, the first thing about those that have an eternal perspective is that they understand that death itself isn't the end. And therefore, even if we die, that circumstance doesn't end in death. And then he waits for two more days. Let's, let's read on. Then he said to his disciples, now let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, listen to this next phrase, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Another very interesting turn of a phrase for Jesus. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, I'm going there to wake him up. There are those that believe that when a person dies, their soul simply goes to sleep, and they use verses like this as a way of bolstering that. But it's a metaphor. 
and it has a very important meaning. I just want to remind you what Paul talked about last week. Death, according to Scripture, is when the soul separates from the body. And so there is no such thing as what some refer to as soul sleep. The body is dead. The soul has departed. What Jesus is speaking of here is an analogy. Let's read on and and make my point. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, won't he get better? Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us now go to him. So we've already seen that one perspective of someone who understands life everlasting is that when they see death, they know it's not the end. It's not the end. And then we have a second glimpse at what it means to have a life everlasting perspective. When Jesus refers to death as simply falling asleep and resurrection, as easy as waking somebody up. (laughs) My wife says I fall asleep very quickly at night. Is that true of it? As long as I can shut my brain off, Vit and I are two very different people. Vit goes to sleep and feels very good if she's made a whole list of what she needs to do in the morning. I need to not have lists in front of me. And it took years for us to get that in sync because Vit would sit there and start going through her lists and then include me on her lists. And then she'd go to sleep and I'd be there just laying awake thinking about my lists. I read. I read stuff that doesn't matter, science fiction, things like that. And then I say goodnight, I roll over, and I'm gone. From an eternal perspective, as tragic and as painful as death can be, when you understand life everlasting, death is no more complicated, no more difficult than just nodding off. But even more powerful is the notion that resurrection can be as simple as saying, time to get up, and we rise. That's Jesus' perspective of death because he understands that all of this life isn't even the beginning when you compare to life everlasting. This whole life is nothing more than a prelude. Death is just the end of the introduction to life when you understand what life everlasting is. I love that thought. Verse 16 Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go then that we may die with him. There's a little subplot here. The disciples are concerned that they're going back where the the Jews are trying to kill Jesus and they fully expect that Jesus is going to be killed. And we know, in fact, that does happen. And so they're fearful to go back. And brave Thomas, yes, doubting Thomas, but also brave Thomas, said, let us go and die with him. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. He waited two days. Lazarus would have died when he was on his way anyway, but Jesus waited until he had died so that when he got there, they'd have already put him in the tomb and he'd have been dead for four days. Later on in the story, when Jesus shows up at the tomb and says, move the stone away, One of the sisters said, Lord, he's been in there so long. By now he stinks. I like the King James Version of it. By now he stinketh. So much more colorful. 
there's something very important here. Jesus intentionally not only allows Lazarus to die, but he allows his body to become corrupted. This is totally different than the other two resurrections we have in the gospel. The widow's son just recently died, according to Jewish tradition. He was just on his way out out of the city, and Jesus raises him. Or Darius' daughter, who was still laying where she had just recently died when he raised her up. No, this was something altogether different. He wanted Lazarus to be stinking dead. By now he stinketh. Verse 21. Lord... Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the important question that we have to answer along with Martha. Jesus believed it. He knew what was about to happen. He knew he had come from the Father. He knew ultimately not only was he going to do the the very simple task of bringing a four-day-old stinking body back to life as though it was just sleeping, he knew even more importantly, he was about to face death in all of its evil and power and conquer it once and for all and completely. And because he believed it, he was able to see this situation with hope, not with hopelessness. And that's the same thing that he asked for us. Verse 27, yes, Lord, he told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we know that Lazarus is only dead because Jesus willed it. How similar are we to that when we come to God and we ask for healing for our loved ones, when we ask for deliverance, And then when God doesn't come through, we think he's failed. If he had just been here for us, this would never have happened. Listen to me. We hold on to this life as hard as we can because all of us struggle with unbelief. We hedge our bets. And because we do not hope in a life that is eternal, we still struggle with thinking that to lose our physical life is somehow defeat and loss, and we don't understand why God doesn't agree with us about that. Some of you are still mad at God for the loss of a loved one because you made the rules about what was fair and what wasn't. And you said to him, God, if you really had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Christ's words to his disciples are same to you. This situation will not end in death. Now watch how Jesus responds. Let's pick it up again at verse 
32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, Jesus wept. One interesting emotional journey. Jesus orchestrates the circumstances that result in Lazarus being dead. He knows that this situation will not end in death. He knows that he himself is the resurrection and the life, and that even if we die, we will live. And yet, standing there with Mary and with those who love this family weeping, what does Jesus do? He weeps with them. There's all sorts of debate as to why Jesus would weep. I think the story tells us. Verse 33, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled, and he wept along with them. Why did Jesus weep about death? Because we weren't meant for it. And even though death isn't the end, doesn't mean it's not tragic and sad. Jesus weeps because he sees friends in pain for the loss of their loved one. He weeps that his friend Lazarus has had to go through it, has had to face it. He weeps as the creator of heaven and earth because he understands that death is the tragic result of sin. And he weeps as he experiences firsthand among those who he loves the impact of sin that it causes everyone ultimately to die. When we're talking about a living hope, we're not talking about people who have no feelings. Death is sad. Death is sad. There's a verse in the Old Testament where God talks about storing up the tears of his children in a bottle. In that day, there were those whose ministry in a village was to be mourners. You might call them professional mourners, but as the body was being carried to its final resting place, they would cry, and they would actually carry a small bottle and catch their tears. Then when the funeral was done, they would present those bottles to the family as a way of expressing that we weep with you. We understand the loss here. So God says, I hold your tears in a bottle. Your tears are precious to me. And Jesus weeps with us. Sorrow is not lack of hope. And we desperately miss those on this side of eternity. And it's okay. And we know that Jesus enters into that sorrow and weeps with us. But it's not the end of the story. Verse 36, the Jews who were watching said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? We hear again that human spirit like Mary was struggling with. My rules say people should live forever now, or at least to a ripe old age. But you see, from God's perspective, ripe old age is too soon to die because we weren't meant for death at all. My nephew that lived for six weeks and my great-grandma who lived to be 102, from a perspective of eternity, 
They're both nothing but a mist. We are so focused on this life, we don't understand that. Everybody should live until we think their life is done. One of the results of sin is that as we get older, we finally gain some wisdom, but we lose the energy. (laughs) We got wisdom, but we don't have vim and vigor. Imagine what it would have been like if we were forever in our prime, and as we grew and as we gained in wisdom, we could reflect the glory of God by making much of his creation. Just imagine what that was meant to be like. You see, every life ends too soon because death is not what we were meant for. We go on, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Now there's a a series of three statements that Jesus says as part of this. The first one, verse 39, take away the stone. He's preparing for the miracle. And in the same way, the Bible says God's doing that for all of us. He's setting the stage at the right time. In the same way Jesus would in a moment call out Lazarus, Jesus is gonna call all of us out. And that takes us to the next stage. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, do I not tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. So you understand, Jesus is putting on a teaching show. Verse 41, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And that's exactly what scripture says is gonna happen. There will be a moment when God calls for all of humanity and says, come out. And even the sea will give up the dead. So what we are seeing in Lazarus is a picture of what God has in store for all of his children. Lazarus, come out. Let me paraphrase. Lazarus, time to get up. Lazarus, it's time. And what happens? The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Can you picture it? Can you imagine it? Can you imagine Martha going, smells pretty good. And then we see the final statement. Jesus said to him, take off the grave cloths and let him go. And the Apostle Paul uses that exact idea as an analogy for you and I who are still in this human form. We are still in our grave cloths, he says. 2 Corinthians 5, that same passage where he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He talks about that hope of the resurrection. And someday all of us will put aside our grave clothes, this corruptible and we'll be clothed in our eternal, incorruptible forms, and we will live forever. This is a picture of our future resurrection. It's an illustration of the power of the one who is the resurrection and the life, and it's a model for how you and I are to face death with sadness, but with hope, 
because we know death isn't the end. This life will not end in death for us. And it's my hope, my hope for you as a child of God that you will be so caught up with that sense of the eternal that you can face death and that you can have a hope. Let's move forward and just for a few minutes, look at what eternal life will be. Let's begin by saying John 3.16 together. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This has always been the point. In Genesis chapter two, we recognize the primary metaphor for eternal life in the Bible, and that's the tree of life. In the Garden of Eden, which was where heaven and earth met, where God dwelled and walked and was in intimacy with his creation. In that place, it says at the heart of the garden was the tree of life. It was theirs to eat. In other words, we were to be partakers of eternal life. Then, in the fall, in Genesis chapter three, God says one of the results of your sin is that you will return to the state from which I created you. From dust you were made, to dust you will return. And so man is cast out of the garden, cast away from God's presence, but also away from the tree of life. And Paul says, death came to all people. In Adam, all die. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. One who has been united with God can do nothing else but live forever. And one who has been separated from God, can only wither and die. The separation from God brings death. It is death. It is spiritual death. And so God has a plan through Jesus Christ to redeem us, to reunite us with himself, and in doing that, to restore to us life everlasting. Everlasting life is one of the primary threads of the whole gospel story. And then we know that it's ours in Christ. I wanna talk to you about three realities of life everlasting. There is an immediate aspect to life everlasting, an intermediate reality, and then there's an eventual life everlasting. The first, the immediate. We tend to look at life everlasting as something we're gonna get to someday. But the Bible says every Christian, everyone who has been born into the family of God has everlasting life. Say this verse with me from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John's purpose in writing his whole letter, which maybe someday we'll study, it's a great book to study, is that we would be confident that right now, eternal life is ours. Eternal life is not something you aspire to or hope to enter into someday. Right now, as a child of God, you are an eternal being. And that ought to mark how you live. That ought to mark your priorities. You should be living as though you're going to live forever, not just the 70 or 80 years that are on this side of the horizon. Another C.S. Lewis quote, if you aim for heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. But if you aim for earth, you'll miss both entirely. 
God saved us. We didn't earn it. We were forgiven because of God's grace. We were given eternal life because of God's grace. We can count on it. It is the hope that we have that is unlike the world who has no hope. The second aspect of everlasting is what theologically refer to as the intermediate phase, what most of us think of as eternal life, and that's what happens when we die. You see, there's very little in the Bible about what happens to people while we're waiting for the ultimate resurrection. There's actually no scripture in the Bible that explicitly says your home is heaven or that you will spend eternity in heaven. Did you know that? We could talk about all sorts of things that are being stored in heaven for us and being prepared in heaven for us, but that's a very different thing than the Bible saying your final home is actually heaven, some mysterious angelic place. Where are those whose souls have left their bodies and are waiting for the resurrection? Where are they now? The Bible doesn't say much except this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So what we know is they are with the Lord. We call that heaven, that's fine. Call it what you want. But where God is, that's where our loved ones are who have gone on before us. But it's not the final state. And so when we focus so much about heaven and our heavenly home and this picture that's gonna be a 24-7 worship service, that's not my idea of life everlasting. Church everlasting, those don't go together. (laughs) But that's how we've portrayed it. God's got something so much better. And that's the eventual life everlasting. There is something yet to come, both for those of us here that are waiting for Jesus and those who have died that are with the Father now but also waiting for the resurrection. And we see it beautifully at the end of the book. Revelation chapter 21. Several weeks ago, we were in Revelation 20 when we talked about Jesus coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we saw this great judgment And then those whose name was found in the Lamb's Book of Life were welcomed in to God's eternal blessing. Now we move on and see what that eternal state will be like as John saw it in a dream. So I wanna start by saying whether or not this is literal or metaphor, I don't care. As long as it's as great as this sounds. Verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed to her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. If you like to mark your Bible, I'd like you to circle these things and draw lines to them. New heaven, 
new earth, new Jerusalem. And then verse 5, everything new. And then in the margin, write 2 Corinthians 5.17. What is the phrase I'm looking for from there that I want you to write in there? Who knows? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So write new creations, circle that, and then draw lines to all of them. This is the complete picture, as best as we have been allowed to see it, of life everlasting. We are already new creations in Christ. We still got grave clothes on, but we're ready. God's done that work. Now he's preparing a place for us, Scripture says. In my Father's house, in my Father's place, are many places I go to prepare a place for you. No mention in that passage of expressly heaven. Where my Father dwells, there are many places, and I'm going to go make a place for you. Now, what is that place that the Father and the Son are preparing together as the Holy Spirit is here in our lives preparing us to move into that place someday? What is that place? Well, first of all, all of creation will eventually be freed from the curse and be newly created in the same way you and I are. As though sin and the curse had never happened, it will be primo all over again. As when God first said, it's very good. It's gonna be that all over again, a new heaven and a new earth. But what we often miss is this idea of the new Jerusalem. I want you to read it again. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Where's the city coming from? It's coming down from heaven. What's it coming down to? The new earth. Jesus said, I'm gonna go prepare a place for you. I'm gonna come and receive you, that where I am there you may be also. Where is God dwelling for all of eternity? What is his dwelling place? It's the new Jerusalem. It's the new city of God. It's described quite symbolically in the following chapter. It can't quite be literally what John sees. There's a lot of symbolism there, but it's a glorious place. And what matters most, it's where God dwells. One of the unique things about the new Jerusalem, as John describes it, is that it's a perfect cube. Did you know that the Holy of Holies in the temple was also a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies was meant to be symbolic of the place where God dwells, just like the New Jerusalem is that. But what else is the New Jerusalem? The New Jerusalem isn't just a city, it's Christ's bride. What is Christ's bride according to Ephesians? The church, we're the bride of Christ. We are his dwelling place. We are what he is creating in some sense, that will someday play out in a way more glorious than any of us can interpret Scripture or ever imagine. What will come true is ultimately this. You want to know what life everlasting is? You know what glorious existence is? It's this. Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no pain, no more death or mourning or crying, for the old order of things has passed away. Here's what we learn about the eventual, our future forever. First, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God's new Jerusalem will come to earth. 
and we will inhabit God's new creation and be with him forever and ever and ever. What is the end of the story? It's you and I, new creations, in a new heaven and a new earth, fulfilling what God had always intended us to do when he said, be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion over the earth. Fill it. And yes, in the same way God walked with man in the garden in intimacy and purity, that's ultimately what we will experience forever. One important note is that at the very end of time, we don't see a reboot. Tommy and I just went to see that Edge of Tomorrow movie. Pretty fantastic playing with timeline. I call it Groundhog Independence Day. (laughs) You'll know what I mean when you see the movie. And at the very end, after they defeat the alien, rebooting every day, spoiler alert. (laughs) When they finally defeat the aliens, it reboots back to before the day even began. But the aliens are gone. That way Tom Cruise gets to give up his life for humanity, but yet still be alive and very cool. Some of us think that's what's going to happen. New heaven and new earth means reboot. We're just going to reset. Sin will be gone. We get to start over. But that's not the picture. It's so much better. What is it we see at the end? Is it a garden? No. It's a city. It's the city of God. But what do we see in the middle of the city of God according to chapter 22? What do you think's there right in the middle of the city of God? The tree of life. And this is what God says about the tree of life. Say it with me. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Eternal life, once ours again, access to that very tree that sin forbade us from. I love that picture, but it's not the garden. It's the city of God. Here's the big point. The new creation and the new earth is not a reboot. It's a finished product. It's not a starting, it's a culmination. God ends up getting exactly what he intended to get all along, and sin could not stop it. And you and I, by grace, get it along with him. Isn't that amazing? That is our eternal life. I love that the creed ends here with us looking beyond the horizon and knowing that death is not the end the creed that tells us the whole story of creation from first to last. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who redeemed us from our sin. And then the Holy Spirit who birthed the church. And we have forgiveness of sins, the communion of the saints. We have the hope of the resurrection of the body. And because of that, we can look down beyond the horizon and know that there's sweet water to the full east, the kingdom. And that's where our citizenship is. So we set our sights. We set our lives. We live as eternal beings. And that's why the creed ends with this word. What is it? Amen. What does amen mean? So be it. It means I'm in. I'm in. I'm all in. 
Father, thank you for this hope. And we know that it's only possible for us to say we believe in the life everlasting because you recreated us in Christ. You've made us citizens of your kingdom. You've forgiven our sins. You're sustaining us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And even as we are being the church down here, you're preparing a place for us. And someday we will be with you in that glorious Jerusalem that joins heaven and earth once and for all. And to that we say, amen.